The scripture reading for today is from Acts 27, 13 through 44. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cotta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that, will be, that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As days was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were, in all, 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. 
He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all built, brought safely to land. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. All right. My name is Harrison. I'm associate pastor here at Hope Chapel. And if I haven't met you before, I'd love to meet you and get to know you better. Um, if you're new or visiting for the first time today or come in the last month or so, please come introduce yourself to me. I'd love to, to meet you. Um, were, were you predetermined? Were you fated to be sitting in your chair listening to my sermon this morning? Or are you here of your own free will, your own decision to come? Are you the, the author of your own destiny? Many of us may have wondered about this question. Um, what's the nature of God's providence is another way of putting this question. Providence is a theological term that borrows kingship language. Uh, providence means that God is king rules. He's in control of stuff. Uh, and there are things and creatures and people that are under his command. Uh, but the question the church has wrestled with as we read scripture is, what exactly is he fully in control of? Uh, or is there anything outside of his control in all of creation? Particularly for our passage today, uh, this story, if you say our, our, the future is predicted or determined by God, what role do the choices and actions play of the people? If God's in the driver's seat in your life, what are you responsible for? This debate has shown up for me pretty practically in my Christian life. Um, early on, when I first became a Christian, I had a lot of crossover in ministry with Christians who believed, ultimately, uh, whether a person was saved was not based on God's choice or sovereignty, but on that person's uh, choice or that person's free will. They would say God has offered salvation to everyone, but the question was whether a person would choose to accept Jesus or not. Uh, that person's choice, you could say, was outside of God's sovereignty. So human choice, in a lot of cases, was really mainly what mattered. Uh, and these Christians were initially some of the more godly people that I knew. Um, they thought their choices mattered a ton. And so they, uh, these, these kind of people did quiet times every morning, uh, praying and reading scripture. They felt really ashamed if they missed a morning. Um, I noticed there was a decent amount of questioning of someone's salvation when they made a number of bad choices in a row. Um, in ministry, they were very committed, even overcommitted at times to helping others make the right choice, uh, working tirelessly around the clock to do ministry in a way that would put um, my ministry now to shame. Um, uh, there was boldness, there was diligence, quick growth, many conversions. Uh, but I also noticed with this group, there was a lot of burnout. Uh, think about it. How would you live if you believed uh, your neighbor would be in hell if you and your, unless you and your choices could convince them and their choices to choose Jesus? Um, you probably wouldn't rest until you had convinced them to choose Jesus. There was a lot of weight uh, to hold in carrying your own eternal soul and that of others uh, under your own sovereignty. I had trouble living that way for more than a few years. And I did eventually see people leaving ministry and also people losing their faith from that group. So that's, that's the first group I experienced with this God's providence question. The second group I experienced, I met some Christians 
later on that believed ultimately a person salvation was based not on their own choice or free will but on god who chooses that person and causes them to be saved and so for, for some in this group not everyone but for some this meant that god and his sovereignty was all that mattered in the christian life equation not us these people were godly too uh, unlike the other ones they stayed christians for a very long time um, had been christians a long time stayed christians and their ministry pace was very sustainable. They were really good at resting. But uh, to me, often their lives didn't look that different from a non-Christian's life. Um, it seemed like it was a lot of hanging out. Uh, no one really did quiet times. Uh, people talked a lot more about how the gospel freed them from the pressure to do uh, pray and read scripture. Um, no one really did a lot of evangelism. There wasn't a lot of urgency. God's going to save who he's going to save. So what, did, what do we need to do about this? Uh, and not many people worked that hard, it seemed like, on changing their own lives and becoming like Jesus, because God, God's going to do all that too. So as you can imagine, um, these two groups of Christians, young Christians, uh, to me, neither one felt totally right in practice. Uh, the descriptions I just gave you, just to say, are a little more caricatured than if you met these people in real life. Um, but I just explained two kind of extremes of fate and free will that might show up in the Christian life. And I intentionally didn't use labels for these groups. So the first group would call themselves theologically Arminian, but they actually hold in practice a belief that the founder of that would never affirm or say. And then the other group called themselves Calvinists, but they also held in practice a belief that John Calvin would never affirm or say. So uh, there's not really a great label that I could put on either of those. Um, but neither one felt right. So uh, we've been going through the book of Acts as a sermon series, and we, we're getting the, the second to last day, and we've arrived at a story that illustrates the answer to the fate and free will conundrum in Scripture. Our story puts on display the biblical picture of God's providence and our human choices working together. And it's going to show us three things. We've got great. This is awesome. We've got the points up here because I put way too many words in these. My seminary professor would be very upset about this. So don't tell them. Um, but this is, these are the points. Uh, it's 4th of July week. Here's what we got. Um, God in his providence plans and accomplishes our history according to his purpose. God's providence includes, not excludes, includes our real choices in that history. And then three, God's providence enables, not disables, enables our most diligent, long-lasting obedience. So we're going to see those three things. You can just leave that up. Probably for the sermon would be good. We're going to see these three things in our passage. Before we dive in, uh, let me pray. Father, uh, many of us this morning wrestled with this question at different points. Many of us have fallen on one of the two sides and um, been lazy at certain points uh, because of a deterministic worldview. Um, and many of us have tried to carry too much weight on our own shoulders and forgotten your your role in, in their life and the lives of others. Um, and I pray that you would give us wisdom this morning as we look at this passage to help us understand this as much as we can as human beings. Lord, help us to walk out of here in wisdom um, and to have the, the proper amount of responsibility and also the proper amount of trust um, when we walk through those doors. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the first point, God in his providence both plans and accomplishes our history according to his purpose. So in our passage, Paul, just to give you a recap of where we're at, Paul is a prisoner on his way to see Caesar in Rome because some Jews had accused him of a lot of untrue things when he was bearing witness in Jerusalem. 
And Paul has appealed his case to Caesar. Paul's using this, as he does with everything, as an opportunity to bear witness. And on their journey to Rome, they've run into a lot of issues. The current one is that it's a bad time of year to sail due to bad winds and storms. And it's also a bad time of year to have your ship in certain harbors because of those same reasons. Uh, The captain of the ship wants to make the trip that they need to make uh, because his boat is going to be in danger anyways in the harbor. But Paul is a really good sailor because he's been on a lot of trips, uh, as Jim has told us about. Uh, and Paul's like, this gonna, if we go now, it's going to cause not only you to lose your boat, but also all of our lives and all of the stuff that you're going to take on the boat as well. And so uh, he warns them against going, but the centurion who's over prisoner Paul doesn't listen to the prisoner, shockingly, uh, but listens to the captain. And they put 276 people on board of this big boat, and they set out. So look at verse 13 with me at the beginning of our passage in your, um, in your worship guide or Bible. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete as close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Calda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So a lot of ships had a little boat uh, that they would have attached to it. And at this point, in the, in the ride, is probably full of a bunch of water and sinking. And so they pull it up barely, with much difficulty, he says. Uh, they pull it up and drain it of the water so they can maybe use it later. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. So this is, this is an ancient practice. They would wrap their boat in, uh, in ropes, uh, and that would keep it from breaking apart uh, to have ropes wrapped around it. So... Um, yeah, the, the ships are not as, you know, it's not a steel boat. Uh, it's not holding together quite like our boats would do now. Um, and then fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis. So this uh, was a sandbar that was known as a ship graveyard. If you, if you hit it, you know, you're, you were done. They lowered the gear, and this is probably lowering things that would help slow them down. So the mainsail uh, with, the, with the mast and also dropping anchors probably as well. Um, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, so they're throwing everything overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. This is the big beam in the middle of the ship that holds the, the big sail. They, they threw all that overboard. Uh, not good. Uh, then, uh, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So sun and stars are how you navigate how you get around in the, uh, the ocean, the sea back in the day. And if the storm hides both of those things, you have no idea where you are and you have no idea where you need to go. Um, so this is like the power goes out in the ship uh, nowadays. Uh, this whole description is showing you how desperate things are getting for this group of 276 people. They're expecting now to die out there in the ocean. Paul's, uh, just as Paul had warned them, would happen. In verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Um, Paul's not saying, told you so, uh, just to gloat, uh, but he's trying to get, uh, I think he's trying to get some trust for the, what he's about to say next. He'll say, hey, I, I know some things. Remember, I said this would happen. Um, and this is where God's sovereignty enters the equation of the story. Verse 22, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. He said, do not be afraid, Paul. 
you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told you. But we must run aground on some island. So Paul has been given a message from an angel that tells the future. God's predetermined providential plan. Paul must stand before Caesar. They must run aground on an island. All this will end with the ship's going to be destroyed, the people are going to be saved, and Paul has faith that that's going to happen exactly the way God told him. This means, uh, in our story at least, God has planned the history of Paul and these people, and Paul is confident God will carry it out, will accomplish this history in real time. And as you saw through the rest of the story, it is exactly what happens. And so it leads us to point one in our story. God in his providence plans and accomplishes our history according to his purpose. Now, if you've been following along in Acts, God's providence like this is not anything new. We've seen God's fixed plan many times. We saw God tell Paul before he went back to Jerusalem that the Jews would not accept his testimony about him and that God would send him to the Gentiles instead. And that's what happened. We already know that God told Paul he must see Rome. Uh, in Acts 19.21, and then in Acts 23.11, that he must testify there before Caesar. So this has been God's plan, at least as we know it, since Acts 19. Even the plan revealed uh, in, this, in this very story has been God's plan all along. Even way back when Paul was converted, uh, remember Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Uh, and so this is an, another, we saw many sufferings of Paul, but this is another one of his sufferings. And then all the way back at the beginning of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples, you will, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that plan is actually exactly what happened in Acts. It's the, it's the outline that theologians use for Acts. Uh, they're first in Jerusalem, then they're in Judea, then Samaria. And now Paul is about to reach the ends of the earth. Caesar in Rome, who's, who's in control of the whole ancient world. Uh, there's a sovereign plan that God has that God is going to accomplish. God's providence and sovereignty are all throughout Scripture as well. Remember Jesus in the Gospels repeating, the Son of Man must be delivered over and be crucified on the third day, rise again. That's the plan. The main message of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, is that even the bad things— are part of God's plan. Remember Joseph saying, as, as for you, to his brother who sold him into slavery, you meant it for evil against me. You planned it, you purposed it for evil. But God meant it, God planned it, God purposed it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Even the bad things in the Bible, Genesis is saying, even the fall, even someone being sold into slavery are part of God's good plan. Paul uh, believes this as well. He tells us in Ephesians 1, 11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will, including us, Paul says, who are predestined according to his purpose. Strong language from Paul saying, on the provident side of things, all things, including us, God has planned. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from my father, Jesus tells us. Now, the major theme of Acts is that nothing can stop the sovereign plan of God. Not opposition to God from outside the church, not opposition to God from inside the church, not the craziest storm on the ocean. Paul must stand before Caesar. 
He must suffer for Jesus' name. You will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. Nothing is going to get in the way of that. Now, I've prepared three illustrations for you guys this morning, uh, all of which are classic stories on the sea. Uh, So if you're a sea kind of person, um, boat person, get excited. Uh, The first one is from Moby Dick. Moby Dick is the story of Captain Ahab, a whaler who goes insane chasing the elusive, dangerous white whale uh, who took off his leg in a previous battle. Uh, Despite a lot of prophecies saying that Ahab would meet his end, um, Ahab persists. And a major turning point in Ahab's story is this God-like statement that he makes. Essentially, this is when he goes insane. He says this, What I've dared, I've willed, and what I've willed, I'll do. The prophecy I, I now prophesy that I will dismember my dismemberer, be the prophet and the fulfiller one. That's more than you, you great gods, ever were. I laugh and hoot at you. No, you've knocked me down and I am up again. Come forth from behind your cotton bags. Come and see if you can swerve me. Swerve me? Can't swerve me. Cracks me up. Uh, (laughs) the, The path to my fixed purpose, he says, is laid with iron rails, whereupon my soul is grooved to run over unsounded gorges, through the rifled hearts of mountains, under torrent beds, unerringly I rush. Naught is an obstacle to the iron way. Captain Ahab is insane because he sees himself as the planner and accomplisher of history, the prophet and the fulfiller one. He sees himself as providence, the all-sovereign. But Acts teaches us his speech is true, but not about Ahab. What God has willed, he will do. Knock his people down and he will get them back up again. God could say, the path of my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails over mobs and councils and divisions and lies and schemes of Satan. Unerringly, God rushes on his mission. Not as an obstacle to God's way. That is the message of Acts. Psalm 2 says, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. But he who sits in in the heavens just laughs. Ha ha. Psalm 46 says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, God is in the midst of his church. She will not be moved. That's what Acts is about. So getting back to the passage, Paul says, Crew, take heart. God in his providence plans and accomplishes our history according to his, pur- to his purpose. And I must stand before Caesar. This message of Acts has a lot of implications for us. Um, we constantly face storms as a church from within and from without, just like they did. Uh, we at Hope Chapel are just now coming through a big storm. Uh, a storm from within that rocked our boat as a church. We couldn't see the stars and sun for many days. A few elders are vomiting off the edge of the boat. Uh, Staff is throwing our programming overboard left and right. And while we're going through this, you're probably also reading articles and turning on the news and seeing more storms that you perceive as coming for the church at large. Many of you have shared these concerns with me, concerns about uh, persecution in other countries, Christians being imprisoned or killed. 
concerns about changes in views of sexuality and marriage and gender in our country. Uh, oh, nice, guys. I mean, we got, we got a storm this morning. This is, this is perfect. Uh, wow. Um, God sent that for this moment. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so concerns about um, changes in, in views of sexuality, marriage, and gender in our country uh, with, within churches, too. Uh, this is happening. Uh, concerns about a lack of justice for the poor, for immigrants, for minorities in our country. The church being a part of that broken system. Noticing division running rampant in the churches in different ways. The church losing credibility and involvement with the younger generations. Uh, there's a lot to be worried about. Pick your storm. The message of Acts that I hope you take home with you is this. Swerve him? I can't swerve him. For over 3,000 years, the people of God have been knocked down, but without fail, God picks them right back up. His purpose is laid on iron rails, and his iron rails are the church. It's us, the church, that shall not be moved. He's in the midst of her. The sovereign God who plans and accomplishes history according to his purpose. So if you want to be godly, when you see a storm, it's okay to have a healthy concern, but don't forget to laugh at it too. What is this compared to the almighty God? And if you want to be like Jesus, don't stay up all night worrying about the storm. Don't forget to get, take your nap in the boat in the middle of the storm. Jesus, wake up. We're going to drown. Oh, what? Oh, what? Oh, a storm? Oh, yeah, right. Uh, be still. Oh, that's fine. You have little faith. Because God in his providence plans and accomplishes our history according to his purpose. Nothing will thwart that. So, that's point one. And obviously this leads to the question, what does this mean for our free will? Will this not turn us into permanent nappers? Uh, couch potatoes on the boat who live a deterministic lifestyle of laziness, like I saw um, at the beginning of a sermon that I mentioned. This leads us to point two. God's providence includes our real choices in that history. We'll pick up, let's pick up in, in verse 24 here. Um, God says, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So implied in this statement, uh, God has granted you, is that Paul has prayed for the 276 people on the boat, for God to save them. Uh, and God says, yeah, because you asked, I'll save them too. It reminds me of Abraham interceding for Sodom in the Old Testament. He appears to persuade God to barter with them. You, sh you should save the city if there are only 50 righteous, right? Just 50? Okay, God says, okay, I want to short if there's 50 righteous. And then he's like, well, what about 45? 45 righteous? What about 40? What about 30? And he ends with 10. Uh, you wouldn't destroy it if there's 10 righteous in there. And God's like, okay, I won't. Uh, it seems that God's iron plan changes based on Abraham's intercession and Paul's intercession in the story. Real human choice and involvement in God's providential plan. Now, verse 27. Uh, when the 14th night had come, we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. And a little further, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. So it's getting shallower and shallower. And fearing we might run aground on the rocks and therefore crash and be killed, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come so they could see uh, where the rocks are. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, this is crazy, the entire crew of this boat, uh, 276, 276 people on the boat, but the crew 
are acting like they're going to go lay some, some anchors, uh, but they're actually trying to get in the little boat and escape to where they think the land's nearby and leave everybody else on the other boat to die. Um, so this is, this is what's going on. Um, and then, uh, where are we at? They're trying to sneak off. And then uh, Paul says the centurion, verse, verse 31, and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Wait a minute, Paul. God has already granted you everyone on the ship, right? God's already said the ship would be destroyed, but everyone would be saved. If that's true, can't these people do whatever they want and still be saved, right? Why are you giving them an ultimatum? Unless you figure this situation out, you're not going to be saved. Verse 32, then the soldiers cut away the ropes in the ship's boat of the ship's boat and let it go. So they decide to force the crew to stay on board, and uh, it saves their lives. Now later, they have to do a lot more stuff to survive. Uh, Paul urges them to eat food so they have the energy to do what they need to do. They have to put down more anchors. They have to dodge a plan to kill the prisoners. That was the plan at one point. Uh, They have to swim on planks to get to the beach. Unless you do all this, you cannot be saved. Things are getting complicated. So in this story, God has a plan. And his plan, notice, is accomplished exactly how he says it at the end of the story. But during the plan, people have real choices with real consequences to make. They won't be saved without making those choices. Paul prays for the people, and this saves them. The centurion chooses to cut away the boats to keep the crew on board, and this saves him. They have to get on planks to get to shore, and this saves them. They're real choices with real consequences that actually lead to the fulfillment of God's plan in the end. And so point two that we see, God's providence includes, doesn't exclude, but it includes our real choices in that history. This phenomenon is all throughout Acts. Uh, Paul must appear before Caesar. But also, if you remember from last week, the Roman judge said uh, he would have been freed if he hadn't chosen to appeal to Caesar. Uh, Human choice and God's plan. Jesus said, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my sake. Yet we we saw Paul choosing again and again to walk into suffering of his own accord. Unless Paul chose to do that, he wouldn't have gone and suffered. In the beginning of Acts, Luke says the book is going to be a story about what Jesus continued to do and teach. But actually, the whole book is a story of the church people continuing to do stuff and teach stuff in Jesus' name of their own choice. Doing and teaching doesn't get done without the people choosing to do it. And lastly, we see non-Christians in Acts all throughout called to repent and be baptized and believe in Jesus. They can't be saved without repenting and believing in Jesus. And yet, Acts 31, 48 says, Of the Gentiles, as many were appointed by God to eternal life believed. As many were appointed by God to eternal life believed. So a real choice with real consequences to choose God. But that's also already what he's already appointed in his plan. Fate and free will in our book are actually operating together. Theologians make sense of this with something called first and second causes. This comes from our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession, that our denomination holds to. And so they take it from Thomas Aquinas, who stole it partly from Aristotle. Um, the idea is that God is the first cause of everything in the world. His plan is behind everything. He never loses control. He's sovereign and king even over your life. But as part of his plan, he intentionally causes things to happen by nature of second causes. 
by the real actions and decisions of his creatures, his people. So he can cause things in his iron plan to happen in such a way that your real meaningful choices are how his plan is carried out to fruition. In other words, God has means, and his means are you. So biblically, it's not fate or free will. It's actually both. That's the answer. First cause and second cause of every action that's taken. The Bible claims this happens in such a way that it doesn't nullify God's iron plan, and it also doesn't nullify your genuine free choice either. And if you say it does nullify one of the sides, then you go into uh, error. But, Harrison, how do they work together? I don't get it. Uh, And the thing is, we don't know how. We just know they do. And that's what God has shown us. There's mystery here in this part, and that's not a bad thing. I I think it's because our brains are really small, and they can't fully understand the intricacies of God's working. Um, But what we do know is that fate and free will work together, as we've seen in Acts here, as we've seen throughout Scripture. Second ocean illustration is the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is a good picture of this playing out. God wants Jonah to prophesy to to Nineveh, a pagan city uh, whose evil and suffering has come up before God. It's God's plan to save Nineveh, and Jonah chooses, no, I will not go, because you are going to save them, and I hate them. Uh, And he goes the opposite direction on a boat. But the thing is, God's plan is iron. God hurls a big storm to to Jonah's boat. They cast lots to see who the problem is, and God makes the lot fall on Jonah, and they cast Jonah off the boat, and then the storm goes away. Then God appoints a big fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah repents while inside the fish, and then the fish spits Jonah out back on land, and God commands him again, uh, go to Nineveh. And Jonah genuinely chooses to go this time. God's plan is the first cause, and nothing is going to thwart that. But Jonah is God's chosen second cause. It's a message to Israel. You are my second cause for salvation to the world. So have compassion on these people and get back to work of being a light to the nations. It's going to happen, but it's not going to happen without you. That's the message of Jonah. And for us, this means that God has an iron plan for you, for your family, for your friends, for your neighbors, and your prayers and actions matter greatly in that plan. You are going to be God's chosen second cause for a lot of stuff. This means your prayers for people will have real consequences in their life. Because you ask, God will grant someone's life to you. Because you ask, God will grant someone's soul to heaven. That's what it means to be a second cause. Contingent on you as well. It's true there's a mysterious working that's going on but in the sense in this passage what happens with this the centurion figures out unless he fulfills his role the plan ain't going to happen you are the second cause your choices are the vehicle that god's chosen to use to bring his kingdom of shalom to the world and so your prayers your real conversations your the daily example that you're setting for others in your life the parents the example you're setting for your kids that's what god is choosing to use to bring them to himself And this all means that you carry a a weight of responsibility. The first Christians I mentioned in in the sermon at the beginning were on to something. Unless those men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. Unless you repent, you will perish. That weight of responsibility is what you carry as a second cause 
that some hyper-Calvinist people don't feel or know about. But Harrison, doesn't this inevitably overwhelm us? Like, like what I said at the beginning, like, like those Christians I mentioned, don't we all burn out? Here's the best part. Is that true biblical doctrine says not only are fate and free will not opposed in Scripture, but it's also our knowledge of our fate that enables our best use of our free will. Our knowledge of our fate enables our best use of our free will. They, they feed off each other. And this is the last point. God's providence enables our most diligent, long-lasting obedience. That's point three. Look in, look in verse 33, the, the, you get to the end of this passage. Remember, the soldiers had cut away the smaller boat. The crew's staying on board. They put down anchors to avoid the rocks they can't see. They're praying for day. Verse 33, uh, when day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day, two weeks of storms, that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. When they had eaten enough, they lighted in their ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So notice what happened here. They felt the weight of their lives in their hands. And they continued in suspense, without food, for 14 days. They were in burnout mode. The weight was too much to carry and sustain. Paul notices they're going to run out of energy and die. And to help, he gives them providence. Not a hair will perish from the head of any of you. So take some food, it'll give you strength. And they did, and were encouraged. And this gave them strength to get back to work. So in this story, it's knowledge of God's providence, knowledge of his plan, doesn't lead them to being couch potatoes. It leads them to getting enough rest and food to pick themselves up and get back to work. You're going to be saved, so don't despair. Get some calories and let's do this. The providence fueled the obedience. This is the theme all over the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, talking about death, it says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because you've been given victory in God's plan, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Providence. And God's victory leads to us carrying out our own victory. Also, this verse in Philippians 2, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because God works in you. Your ability to work out your salvation as a second cause comes from God as providence, and his first cause already doing that inside of you. So God's providence enables our most diligent, long-lasting obedience. You see how fate and free will are imposed, but they're actually working together. Providence fuels our obedience, and our obedience leads to the carrying out of God's providence. Last illustration, uh, Robinson Crusoe, a book about a shipwreck, uh, all about the major theme of God's providence, had to include it in here. Um, Robinson Crusoe is based loosely on a true story about a man who's shipwrecked uh, on a remote island for 28 years. He has to survive many different dangers, including cannibals, and at one point he begins to despair. Uh, it's too much weight to carry, thinking of his whole life on his shoulders, all the tasks and suffering ahead he must do alone to survive. But he has a Bible, and he learns about God's providence through it, and this changes everything for him. Uh, he says, Therefore I acquiesce in the dispositions of providence, which I began now to own and to believe, ordered everything for the best. I quieted my mind with this and left off afflicting myself with fruitless wishes of being somewhere else. 
So knowledge of God's providence in the midst of his despair quieted his mind, took away fruitless desires to be somewhere else, gave him the ability he needed to begin the big task he must do to survive. It actually leads him to flourishing there in his isolation. It leads him to thank the Lord who created this opportunity for him to get to know the Lord and rely on God's support and comfort. And he said that's better than living in society with people. He flourishes in an impossible situation because of God's providence. I wonder for you, let's end with this, what's been shipwrecked in your life? What leads you at times to despair? Sometimes for me, I can, marriage can feel like this. Certain recurring fights late at night. How did we get here? But then I remember God's providence. He and his providence joined us together on one of the best days of my life. We are not outside of God's plan. And when I remember that, I can get up and begin loving my wife again. What's your shipwreck? Could be recurring doubts, a broken friendship, the sixth pastor failing you at this point in your life, a terrible job with no other prospects, no spouse after years of looking. In the midst of these moments, Paul would encourage you to quiet your mind, be still, and know that he is God. Now, the secret is those shipwrecks in your life are actually key pieces in God's plan. Notice in this story all the witness God sneaks in during the storm. He actually sent the storm. Uh, he bears witness to 276 people on his boat and to the people on the island that Paul lands on. Uh, there's a lot of witness that happens there after the story. And your shipwrecks are moments of witness too. In our shipwreck, that is our church, uh, God is bearing witness through it. He planned it so we can eat and take heart and then get back to the grindstone of repairing our ship. God's the first cause of repair of all the shipwrecks in the world. But we as the church are his second cause. So let's get to work. Amen.